Psalm 136, if you'll turn there with me, to the songbook of the Bible. And this truly is a hymn. We have the chorus, and every verse ends with a refrain. For his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136 and Psalm 135 are called twins. While each psalm has an independent structure of their own, when you put them side by side, these two psalms, you see they have much in common. Both are probably, and we say probably because we do not know for sure, we do know that some of the psalms were written by King Hezekiah. And uh, many think that this is one of the hymns that, the psalms that King Hezekiah wrote. They form an appendix to the Songs of Degrees, which Psalms 120 through 134 form that designation. Psalm 135 rehearses parts of Israel's history and emphasizes the folly of worshiping false idols in the, the psalm previous. Psalm 136 also rehearses Israel's history. You get the idea that God likes to remind us of things that he has done. One of the reasons is because we are prone to forget. And another reason is because it displays his glory to remind us of the great things that he has done. And so this psalm also rehearses parts of Israel's history. It emphasizes the wisdom of worshiping the true God. Psalm 135, the folly of worshiping gods that have no ears and they have eyes, but they see not, ears, but they hear not. Our God sees and hears and knows and has power. And Psalm 136 tells us why we should worship the true God, the wisdom of worshiping the true God, whose mercy endureth forever. And while the theme we might say of this psalm is our gracious God, that theme is echoed through that refrain, His mercy endureth forever. You can tell this is a hymn with that chorus as it's repeated throughout. And as always, when God emphasizes a truth, when He repeats anything, we need to sit up and pay close attention to what He's putting emphasis on. When you use italics or caps or underline something or exclamation points, uh, in your writing, you're trying to emphasize certain things to the one you're writing to. When the Holy Spirit repeats certain things, especially in the same verse in a different way, or there's just rote repetition, that is a theme that he's trying to get through our heads and hearts. There is a duty to understand. There is either a command to obey or a blessing to be enjoyed when you see something repeated. And, and first we see here the psalmist urging his hearers to give thanks in verses 1 through 3. Let's look there. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. And so we see two great reasons here, God's goodness in verse 1 and God's greatness in verses 2 and 3. Think about it, the goodness of God. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. God's mercy is like a vast, unchartered ocean. If you can imagine the earth when it was without form of void, it was absolutely water, filled with water, covered with water. No shores. And for all we know, an unchartered depth. Twenty-six times we're told about the depth of God's ocean of mercy here in this uh, Psalm 26 times we're told that it's past finding out. 
we sing, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner. There is, and more grace is for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. But in actuality, God's love is much deeper than this. The word for mercy here is the word used for grace or loving kindness. And so when you see that word mercy, we could interchange God's grace, his, our, his unmerited, undeserved favor toward us. The words mercy, grace, and loving kindness are used interchangeably in the scriptures. And that kind of mercy lasts, guess how long? Forever. There's absolutely no end to it. God's mercy is showcased at Calvary on the blackest, darkest day possible. In fact, the scripture tells us that miraculously and mysteriously, the earth turned black as night at noonday to emphasize the great work that was transpiring there, God becoming flesh and dying for us. In dazzling display there at Calvary, the loving kindness, the marvelous grace of God is on display at Calvary. Luke 23, verse 34, our our Savior cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This love outshines the sun. It outglows the stars. And we see in verses 2 and 3 the greatness of God. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, while it's seeming to say the same thing, it is not. Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7, the Lord did not set his love upon you. And he's having to remind them. I just want to remind you, God didn't set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. When God chose Israel, there was nobody. He had to create Israel. He chose Abraham and created Israel. From, from So it wasn't because of their large number, but because the Lord loveth you the lord loved you now that's the final thing to it and the reason that god has saved us and added us to the bride of christ is not because we were lovely or any in anything that you could think of it is simply because he loved us we cannot explain god's love for us you can try as you might you can ponder it throughout the scriptures afresh and anew we cannot comprehend why God loves sinners. God's love is, is absolutely divine. Just look at us. Well, just look at yourself. Look into the heart that you know beyond any others. How could God love you? Samuel Davies writes in that beautiful hymn, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike, and unrivaled shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Oh, may this strange, this wondrous grace, this matchless miracle of love fill the wide earth with grateful praise and all the angelic choirs above. And then the refrain, who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? That's just the way God is. And he's a God of gods, the scripture tells us here in verse 2, in, verse, in verses uh, 2 and 3. Verse 2, God of gods. 
Above all, false pagan gods, as the previous psalm tells us about. The psalmist spends a great deal of time telling us how absolutely ridiculous it is to worship graven images, and yet people do. And even though they might not have an idol on their dashboard or in their cupboard at home, there are all kinds of idols that people are bowing to just now, aren't they? How foolish it is. The heathen gods are nothing. They're vain, they're worthless, they're empty. They just a representation of the fallen princes and powers and the principalities that are behind them, the fallen angels of Lucifer, and the unknowing, many times the unknowing worshipers don't realize they're really worshiping the underworld, the darkness, the, the fallen angels of Satan, because Satan just counterfeits. That's all he can do. God of gods. And then the next verse tells us that he's Lord of lords. In other words, the heavenly rulers. You go from one extreme to the depths of hell to the heights of heaven. Do you know the angels are divided into courses of powers and principalities and, and uh, the organization of the angelic host. There are archangels and all that we don't fully understand. And, and Lucifer has a mirror counterfeit, counter-opposite to that. And so he's God of gods, all the false gods. He's God over all of them. And he's the Lord of Lords. That word Lords means the heavenly rulers, the angelic host that rules. Above them all, it's a side, God's throne is in the sides of the north. Throne above thrones. Our God is to be praised for his mercy. What else is there to praise him for? There are many things, but at the bottom of it all is his mercy toward us. Long after Satan and his demons have been dealt with, the Bible tells us there's coming a day and they'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And the, the God of all gods and the Lord of lords will reign in perfect majesty and glory and splendor. Verse 3 tells us of his dominion. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. All power in heaven and earth is his. Our Lord Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. What an encompassing statement that is. How much power? All power. The Father has delegated, reserved it to the Son. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And in fact, that is the, uh, what he tells us before he tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Because of this power, all power is given to me. And I delegate you, when we proclaim the word of God, we have all the authority of heaven behind us. When you witness to someone, Satan whispers, you're stupid, you're feeble, you're frail, you don't know what to say, you don't know the questions to answer. He gives you all these negative things. But what you need to know is all of heaven stands behind you saying amen. And all the resources and power of the Godhead are, are, are flowing through that message. The power of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what? The power, the dynamite in the Greek of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth. And so it, the power is in, not in you, the feeble teller, the feeble preacher. If I thought it was in me, I would, I would give up because there's nothing in Chris Lamb that could influence anybody to do anything. I talked Kathy into marrying me, and that's about the only thing I've been able to talk anybody into doing it, to doing. And so when we think about our own personal charisma and influence, we don't have much influence. But God's power and authority, the angelic host, all of that is behind the authority of preaching. He's delegated us to preach his gospel. All power on, in, in heaven and earth is his. On earth, mysteriously, in the, within the confines of his sovereignty, empires rise and fall. 
I'm a studier of history, and uh, you see the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and most recently the British Empire, the vast uh, resources and the colonies of Great Britain, that little country no bigger than the, the, the land mass, the same size as the state of Alabama, once ruled the world. Now, that's just a memory, isn't it? Empires rise and fall, come and go. In the height of their reign, Caesar or Victoria or any of these rulers would have never thought that their empires would be anything less than they were at their zenith. But look at them now. Man's cruelty continues on and on. Wars, nations rise against nations, suffering, sickness, unreasonable things, injustice, and wars and catastrophes, inexcusable uh, or unexplainable diseases continue from sunrise to sunset somewhere on earth tonight. There's, there's problems. We've heard about the horrors in Paris, and, and that's becoming a daily report, isn't it, terrorist actions. And then there's dreaded disease in parts of Africa to other parts of the earth. There's not a place, hardly you could put your finger on the, the map where there's not horrible things. In our own nation, while with all the technology and wealth, at our disposal, there's murders and, and horrible things going on moment by moment. But God in his mercy, believe it or not, puts a limit on all of it. Hitlers come and go, don't they? They don't forever fill their, uh, their places and do their atrocious deeds. Bin Laden's rise and fall. There was a time that nobody thought that he would ever have been caught, ever been dealt with. And now it's just a fact of history. Hitler's come and go. These men and these empires, these ideologies rise and fall. In time, all these wear out and pass away. Nebuchadnezzar's ruled only so long. Though ruthless and all-powerful, it, it seemed that they were. Hitler's atrocities did end, didn't they? Fast forward into the future and we see a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and King Jesus comes to earth again, not as a baby in an animal stall, not as a lowly shepherd with a group of fishermen and ragtag group of followers, not as a suffering Savior dying for our sin at Calvary, but he with crowns upon his head and his train filling the temple king of kings and lord of lords he will establish his kingdom and the prayers of all the saints will be answered we pray daily do we not thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth how is it being done in heaven perfectly implicitly quickly without argument no wrongs all justice we long to see that in our lives and in our earth and it will come to pass all the saints one day will be able to say amen and amen. That's why we can sing in verse 2, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. But not only do we see the command to give thanks, that's enough, isn't it? But we, give, have, in the, in the, we see the reasons to give thanks in verses 4 through 25. And this list of reasons really is limitless. He just enumerates some of them in these verses. We can group them into three major departments. First of all, because he is creator. We wouldn't be here if this God had not decided in his own uh, majesty and glory and good f uh, pleasure to create us. We wouldn't be here at this particular moment 
in the continuum of human history. Why now? Why us? Why here? That's the question that men of all the ages have tried to answer because of his good pleasure. To him alone doth, doeth great wonders. His mercy endureth forever. John Phillips writes, To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. He said, I remember watching a tiny spider run across my desk. The little fellow was no bigger in body than the period at the end of a sentence. He was going for all he was worth, trying to get away from the enormous monster, me, who was eyeing him. He had eight legs, just tiny wisps of hair they seemed. He had eight eyes, no doubt, all staring out of his head with fright. They were too small for me to see. Think of the wonder of it. That God could pack so much creative genius into such a small space. Inside that tiny dot of a body, that minute creature had a heart, a circulatory system. He had senses and instincts and genes and chromosomes. He could see, eat, and walk. And doubtless, tiny as he seemed to be, to me, there were other creatures in his world that looked upon him as an awesome monster. We have a God who doeth wonders. It is amazing, isn't it? The universe is full of such things. That's just one tiny little example. From the inner mystery of an atom to the outer mystery of black holes in space and universes, all these things point to a majestic, wondrous, all-wise creator. And the Bible tells us here, by wisdom he made all things. That goes absolutely contrary to the evolutionist thought, doesn't it? They tell us that things just happened. There was an explosion. Something happened sometime, somewhere. We don't know when, and we don't know how, and we don't know what. But something happened, and boom, here we are. What an explanation. Friends, that, that defies any intelligent reasoning. That just, we don't know when, where, how. It just happened. The Bible tells us very specifically Look there in verse 5. What a definitive answer to him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. He made all things. More and more scientists and astronomers discover whole new frontiers of stars and space and parallel uh, planets and things that they didn't even know were there. It seems to be endless. What a God ours is. And his mercy outshines his creation. You see, the psalmist points out these things to boggle our mind and says, well, his mercy is far beyond all that. His mercy endures as long as he does. And that's forever. He put the stars in their space, in their places, and he put the seas in their place, setting their boundaries. Now, if God had not set their boundaries, did you know that water inevitably will take over space where it once was? And the Bible tells us the world was out without form or void, and all the, the darkness covered the face of the deep. The, the water covered the vast, waterless, shoreless uh, earth, which is hard for us to even imagine. And so God decided he spoke and created boundaries for the seas. He, verse 6 says, he stretched out the earth above the waters. He, he brought the earth out from and above the waters. And uh, to, to separate the dry land from the, the water. At creation, the waters covered everything. And they would once again reclaim the whole face of the earth if he did not keep them at bay. And then once he did, didn't he, in judgment, 
He allowed the waters to return just as they were before he separated them. And then because, what? His mercy endures forever. He entered into the picture. He caused the waters to abate and made a covenant out of his own honor and majesty. I'll never do this again. Only the Creator could do that. He set a bow into the sky on the way to school the other day. The grandsons were with me. We saw this enormous rainbow. And you know immediately what they said. Because it's a silent sermon to all of us. God set the rainbow in the sky and he promised to never destroy the earth in that way again. No, my friend, the next time it will be much worse than water. It will be a flood of fire. He will absolutely destroy and remake the earth and the heavens. Verses 7 through 9 describe more of his creative acts. The sun is a giant reactor generating heat and light with an efficiency beyond anything ever dreamed of by people of old time. The moon is a great reflector of the sun's light that it, regener- that it generates, and it catches that light. And when the sun is not seen, God designed it gloriously where the moon will reflect light so that we can see at night upon a darkened earth. How merciful God is. The sun radiates on its surface about 70,000 horsepower per second, uh, per square yard every second. In the time it took to say that sentence, the sun consumed 10, 12 million tons of gases. It's all beyond our comprehension. The sun's mass is so vast that millions of years from now, it will have hardly diminished at all. Our Creator God has made sure that the sun will shine just as long as He needs it to. And when He's through, it will cease. And do you know there will come a day when there will be no need for the sun because the Son of God will be the light and He will radiate such holiness and glory there will be no need for an earthly or a heavenly sun. He told the sun and the moon what to do. Look there in verses 8 and 9. The sun to rule by day. That's your job. God gave the sun its job description. You will rule by day for His mercy endureth forever. We need that sun, don't we? For all that is done here on earth for the vegetation, for our own well-being, the moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. Think of the orderliness of the sun, the moon, the stars, the way they do exactly what God has set them in in orbit to do as they undertake their journeys through the space, the laws of of mathematical precision that govern the movement of those stars and sun. If there are no such order... There would be chaos, as the evolutionists tell us, but there's not chaos. They're, they're not, they're not in a, just a mass chaos of exploding gases continually. If there were no such order, what a chaotic universe there would be. We'd be destroyed by stars falling from the sky, and the sun get veering off its course or getting too close to us and scorching us. But the sun is exactly where God put it. And he, the sun will stay there until God gets through with it. We would never know for sure the length of a day or be assured of a coming season if God had not defined the orderliness of these, these objects. Our lives would be just a thing of chance and whim and, and the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars are just another proof of God's mercy enduring forever. We see in verses 10 through 24, our God is in control of, of all things. 
This ought to give you great comfort tonight because if you read the newspaper or listened to the news before you came to prayer meeting, I hope you don't do that because it gets you very discouraged. It may give you a lot to pray over, but it, it makes you wonder what, what's going to happen. But God's in control of all that. Do you know that? We see how God delivered Israel. And he takes a, a, a nation, his people, out of history and brings it to light and lets us examine it. God always gives us wonderful examples to back up what he teaches he illustrates his own teaching in ways that we can understand. And so he calls Israel to testify that his mercy endures forever. Think about it when he smote the firstborn of Egypt. And some uh, cynic would say, mercy? Mercy? Smiting all the firstborn of Egypt? Let me tell you, friend, that he was absolutely justified as the judge of all that is right to smite all of them. Not just the firstborn, but the parents and the leastborn and everyone in between. And the nation of Israel while he was at it, if he, if he was, uh, wanted to, because he is perfectly just. He is absolutely holy and we're absolutely sinful. And that was after countless warnings. How long did he deal with Pharaoh? How many majestic and miraculous things did he show him? Nine times he gave great evidences to Pharaoh of who he was. And Pharaoh had to admit that this God was the God of, of gods. Even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Oh, yes, God displayed his wrath in Egypt, but it was not unjustified. His mercy was shown there in his wrath. In verses 11 through 14, we see other examples of deliverance. He brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand, he saved Israel, redeemed them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. God, who is spirit and has no body, the Son took on a body and has a body, but God the Father is spirit and has no arms or hands. But the, the biblical writers use these personifications because if they did not, we could never comprehend God. His arm is his power and his hand is his help. And we always see that in the scripture. His, outstretch, his strong arm and his outstretched hand. It was even a greater hand and a more far-reaching arm that secured our salvation at Calvary. Greater than the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt. Our Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. What a promise. You could just read over that if you're not careful. Jesus said, My sheep will never perish ever perish we'll live just as long as god lives is that not what he says my sheep will never perish ne neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand oh they may kill this body but they can't pluck our soul out of the hand of god paul said for me to live is christ and for me to die is gain it's whichever way we have a win-win situation all of this in heaven too my father which gave them me is greater than what all all things, all beings, all powers, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. One of the most strongest, powerful verses in the, in the Bible. Nothing is too hard for our God. Why then do we come to prayer meetings with fears and doubts and wonders if these prayers we're going to offer tonight will be answered? We fully expect them to, don't we? 
I hope you came with expectation tonight as we enter into prayer. We're going to ask for God to bless us and to save the lost and to outstretch his arm in the conversion of sinners in our congregation and those who come under the sound of the gospel. We're going to ask him to bless the seed that's being sown, those little hearts over there crossing the waters. Don't we expect him to? Don't we expect to see fruit from that? Don't we expect to see people saved and follow the Lord in baptism and missionaries sent out? Don't we expect the Lord to send the Kokenzie's labors? They've asked us to pray for that tonight. Are we going to ask? Lord, send them the laborers they need, the helpers, to get out the gospel there in Brazil. They're, the, the, that uh, is so powerful. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. We often say, oh, I can't reach it. You know, it's just out of reach. The Lord is never in a situation like that, that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. And he says in Jeremiah 32, verse 27, here's a good verse to claim at prayer meeting. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? What a question that God would ask that about himself. By the way, is there anything too hard for me? And so he is so, uh, that arm is so able, so powerful that it is stretched the awful span from God's perfection in heaven above to Calvary's cross. When our Savior's arms were stretched out there, what a span that was. That awful guff that God did span to bring salvation down to man. In verses 13 through 14, we see he controls the seas and can separate them. Now, this is one of those miracles in the Bible. He's referring to the parting of the Red Sea when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. There's a new movie I hope you don't go see those things that Hollywood puts out that are so atrocious and are mockery. They're so far off base. It's just ludicrous. You'd think if someone was going to make a, an epic out of something, at least they ought to read the record and, and go by what the record says. You might as well just do mythology. And uh, I've read recently in the Wall Street Journal an article about how the Red Sea, you, from time to time these come out, they explain to us, like we're dummies, how the Red Sea, what really happened then. I'll tell you what really happened. What the Bible says is that God divided the Red Sea. He piled the waters up on either side, and they walked through on dry ground. There wasn't a piece of, one piece of mud on their sandals when they walked across. The Scripture says very specifically dry ground. Now, you can explain away miracles, but a miracle is, after all, what? A miracle. It is what it is. You don't have to have, sometimes God uses the laws of nature. I mean, by the way, he invented the laws of nature. He can certainly use them, and he can suspend them at will if he wants to. If he wants to say, son, son, I don't need you right now. Just stand still for a little while, and I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. If he wants waters to pile up while a million people walk over, feeble, frail, old, young, new, little ones, they, had, they were dragging a bunch of stuff. They weren't running. They weren't military men. They were, you remember the old uh, westerns and the wagon trains? They were going, creeping across. That's, that's how long would it have taken all those people dragging their pots and pans with them and all the stuff they borrowed from the Egyptians to get across? And what, what, how did that happen? God caused it, quite simply. And the Bible tells us that his Shekinah glory hovered between the children of Israel, waited till they safely got across to the last feeblest old lady got across, excuse me, old man got across on their crutches, their canes, and Pharaoh couldn't do one thing about it but stand there chomping at the bits. The Shekinah glory cloud of God hovered between them and kept them at bay. 
I don't even know if the children of the Egypt, Egyptians could even see why they were just, they were paralyzed. They couldn't get to them. I think, this is just my, you had to be careful about this, they were in frustration as they just watched the whole thing. The people just going across on dry ground. Pharaoh was haughty, wasn't he? If nine periods of miraculous things did not change his heart, he would be just as stupid to think, well, we'll get across there too. And the Lord let them get right in the middle of it. And he caused the waters to go back to where they were. The Bible says he tells the seas where to go, where to stay. And he can make it go upward. He can defy the laws of gravity. No problem with, with the Lord. He parted the Red Sea so that his redeemed could walk over on dry land to the other side. And then verse 15 tells us that he overthrew Pharaoh and his armies in a watery grave. The unbelievers foolishly think they can do what believers can do, but they cannot. The promises of the Bible are not for unbelievers. Did you know that? They're ours. And he's given great and precious promises to his children. But halfway across, his chariots broke. Their axles broke. The wheels bogged down. These mighty weaponry of the Pharaoh just wouldn't work. He brought them to confusion. The walls of water came crashing down upon them. It is a mercy for all mankind that sooner or later, all tyrants like Pharaoh will be dealt with by our mighty God. And from time to time, he just gives us previews of what's going to happen in the great day, in the latter day. He will put them all to bay. All history proves this to be true. We see there in verses 16 through 22, God's, how he directs his people. Aren't you glad of that thing? We're so stupid. We, we, we do mess things up, don't we? Even the redeemed need, especially the redeemed need direction. We see there in verse 16, to him which led his people through the wilderness for his mercy endureth forever. Now we've gotten out of the Egypt and across the Red Sea, and this is in their wilderness wanderings. God's daily guidance of Israel was as powerful of a demonstration of his enduring mercy as his deliverance was. It was took as much power and might, though it might not have been as showy, for God to care for them. Can you imagine watering and feeding a million people every day? I mean, that, that were, it's absolutely miraculous. He carefully allowed them to go through experiences that would grow them, that would sanctify them and discipline them into the experiences, and that they would delight in him. He fed them with... Food from heaven, again, a miracle. God gave them water miraculously from rock and and from the victory over Amalek, the first who came against them in the land. He endured all their murmurings, all their backslidings, all their unbelief. He endured their carnality and their worldliness. And do you know what? He does that for us too, doesn't he? In verses 17 through 22, we see how he controls all things, even in their, their wars. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Do you know these, these were the last remnant of the horrible giants? The result of sorcery and spiritism, mean and monstrous men. They were cruel, they were ruthless, and it was a mercy for God to allow them to be defeated. If you read back in Leviticus chapter 18... In that sordid list of things that God lists there, he says, none of these things should ever be named among my people. And we see there the sins of the inhabitants of Canaan. Incest, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, on and on and on. And this was just the lifestyle, the, the filthy lifestyles of the people of the land of Canaan. 
These people were infecting surrounding nations and their sin was polluting uh, in their polluted religious religions and their lascivious living was spreading through all the world. If God had not allowed Og and Sihon to be defeated by Egypt and the other, by Israel and the other kings to be defeated as they took over the land of promise, they would have destroyed the world with their sin. God effected exact surgery and excised these cancerous beings and, and, and kings and people from the land. We see that in verses 21 through 22, he tells us that he conquered their territory. And again, I'm quoting from Dr. Phillips. When God began to populate this planet, he divided the lands among the various families. He it was who first decided who should live where. In his eternal councils, the land between the Euphrates and the Nile was to be Israel's. In due time, therefore, he deeded it to Abraham. Did he not? He said, as far as you can see, this this will be your, your land. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fact that this land was seized and occupied by a dozen Canaanite tribes, that it was sought and fought over by empire-hungry pharaohs, Assyrians and Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, that parts of it were invaded and settled by Philistine warriors from the west, and that part of it was held tenaciously by Phoenician merchant princes to the north made no difference. The title deed were Israel's. They still are. Israel out of the promised land signifies that there is a limb of the body that is out of joint, a source of pain and trouble. For although the wandering Jew is a source of blessing to nations that give them a temporary home, they are also their bane. They belong in their land. Today the nations that still are fighting tooth and nail to keep Israel out of the land are hurting themselves, inflaming an old wound, hindering the healing of the nations. God who smote great kings for Israel's sake in days gone by and who gave them their inheritance in the promised land, is able to do the same today. He has not changed his mind. He has not revoked Israel's title deeds. He will yet settle Israel in its heritage and thereafter heal the hurts of all nations, as the Bible tells us. The the government will rest upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It will all radiate from that little place between the Euphrates in the river, in, in the Nile. God defended Israel there in verses 23 through 34, 24. He remembered them. He remembers us. He cannot forget his own. No matter how far we go, no matter how low we fall, no matter how feeble and forgetful we may get, he remembers us and cares for us. He remembered Israel the 400 years they were in Egypt. The Bible says God remembered them. He doesn't forget. Though he delays, that doesn't mean he's forgotten. The 70 years of their Babylonian captivity, God remembered them and heard their cry. And then he continues to remember them for these 2,000 years that they've been spread across the earth in judgment and discipline from the Lord since Rome sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. We don't foresee... We don't forget how our loved ones do we. We don't uh, forget them with our hearts turned toward them, and neither does God forget his. We see there in verse 24, he rescued them. He hath redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endureth forever. The word redeemed means to rescue, literally. And the root meaning means to break. When God redeems us, he breaks the chains that bind us, the authority over us, and he rescues us. It's an appropriate thing to call rescue missions and those 
uh, missions that try to reach people who are in the bondage of sin. But all of us need that kind of rescue. God knows how to rescue his people. Uh, if, if this is Hezekiah, the author, and we think that it is, the Lord delivered him, Israel, out of the hand of Sennacherib. Sennacherib was marching a vast army to overtake Israel, and Israel could do not one thing. They had not the power to do it, and miraculously, God turned the tide of events. This should be a warning to the rest of the world that what God can do to Sennacherib, he can do to them. In verse 25, the Lord considers all things. Every creature on earth is looked at after and provided for. Amazingly, we, the Lord Jesus said that his father sees every little sparrow, knows where it is, what it needs. And so we end where we begin. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for his, uh, to the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. Well, we've been around the world and we come back to the same conclusion, don't we? Doesn't he deserve our praise and our prayers tonight?